Welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. I am this week's host, Dixie Cochran, here with Matthew Dawkins. Hello. And Eddie Webb. Hi. How are y'all doing? It's been a hot minute. It has been, actually, a minute. It, like, feels like a hot minute, but, I mean, it's just, you know, I guess the audience doesn't know, but I know, and I care, so how's everybody doing? <laughs> I think our audience cares. Well, if they're listening, I assume they care. But uh, other than just suddenly get, talking about Star Wars The Phantom Menace, out, out of nowhere, <laughs> really. All down you brought to it one, up! Yeah, down to one long fingernail. Uh, I am, I'm doing well. I'm doing very, very, very well. And the reason I'm doing very, very, very well is because I've had some books come back from editing. I've had some books come back from approval. It's given me a chance to have a fresh look at manuscripts I turned over either a couple of weeks ago or a few months ago. And it's always nice, I think, to revisit uh, books after after a short time away, uh, either to realize all the horrible mistakes you made, which is <laughs> rarer than realizing, you know what, this was actually good good. Good yeah. fun to write, and it's yeah. uh, good work that the writers have put out. So, yeah, I'm in a good mood. Now, question. Hmm. Is, would you give uh, advice to writers to write the way that you just talked? And if something is extremely something, call it very, very, very? Yes. If they are writing for <laughs> They Came From, and especially if we do ever do where They Came From, it's a mad, 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 mad world, you can write... <laughs> Uh, this is a very, very, very silly film. But beyond that, <laughs> I would I would lean on something like extraordinarily. You don't often see extraordinarily anymore. Yeah, he was a very, very, very bad vampire. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> bad vampire. Squirt, squirt. Vampire the masquerade for children. We didn't do a kids version. Missed missed our chance. <laughs> well, now you can do the day came from beyond the grave kids version. Yeah, true. It could. Eddie, how you been? <laughs> How's things? How's Darby? You have a dog. Uh, I care about the dog. Actually, pretty good. Dar- Darby, Darby is great. Um, yes. uh, I did go to Midwinter recently, and she was very angry at me, and of course expressed her displeasure by wiggling immensely and being very clingy to me when I got back. Aww. So she was like, "Where are you at? Oh, you were gone. I'm mad at you, but I love you." Um, she also loves the cold in a way that I do not love the cold. So she's like, I want to walk for five hours. I'm like, I want to go back home. This is way too cold. No, I'm going to keep walking. She's like, why don't you grow some fur? Like I did. Come on. It's like, come on. This is, you have clearly evolutionarily backwards dad. And so (laughs) I I can't really argue with her on that front. And how are things? Otherwise, yeah, good. Like, similar to Matthew, um, uh, I'm in a good place. I just got the uh, print-on-demand version of NWE Unleashed, so that was fun to see. Ooh, very nice. I hear the developers on that one did a fine job. Oh, yes, it was a fantastic job. Uh, (laughs) Those people definitely did a great job in really nailing uh, the, the wrestling genre. We really need to do an episode dedicated to that one, don't we? Although I, I suspect it will just be us two throwing wrestling catchphrases back and forth at each other. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna call out of work for that one. You can host <laughs> that one, Dixie. <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> Dixie's just gonna leave. Yeah. Dixie's gonna like just do the intro and then just drop out of the call and then yeah, I'm gonna us. <laughs> I'm gonna cut a promo and then I'm going to do a uh-huh. heel turn. And leave. Good job, good job. Yes! Can't do a heel turn if you're already a heel. You forgot building heat. Well, I, 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 I'm going to be on the podcast long enough to build any heat. <laughs> That's, true. That's, true. That's cheap heat if you just walk out. <laughs> Speaking of things we got in the mail, Eddie sent me a Japanese uh, gaming magazine that printed some of the adventures that I developed for Monarchies of Mao. And oh my god, it's yeah, so much fun to which- look at. <laughs> I was going to ask you how, what, what you thought of it, and I changed dig into it. Yeah, yeah. They, they they use a lot of our art. They also do some like cute kind of manga cartoon drawings in there, uh, which is yeah. really fun. Um, my Japanese is unfortunately incredibly rusty. I'm going to have to get one of our friends who speaks it far better to to look at some stuff for me. But yeah. it is really exciting, and it came with a, a, a Monarchies of Mouse screen also in Japanese. Yes. Which is just nifty, in my opinion. I just like having that. 
I think yeah. it's cool seeing your work in other languages, even if you don't speak the language fluently. It is. And it was interesting because um, uh, the company that did Japanese translation group, SNE, that was one of the things we discussed is uh, separate adventures and screens and like that just generally aren't sold that way in Japan. They, they are right. done through their magazines. Um, and so it's like, well, this is going to be magazine content. So, though really they only print uh, uh, the core rulebooks. And I think um, Pan's Guide is the only other thing they did as a separate product. But they did, they did all of the Avengers for Curious Cats. Um, they, they've reprinted some of the short fiction even. Mm-hmm. Um, all the screens are add-ins to specific uh, uh, issues of the Warlock magazine is what's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this was a really fascinating little kind of insight into um, how the markets differ. Yeah, totally. No, it is it is super, super cool to to see it and have it. So thank you for sending that to me, Eddie. Of course. It was very exciting to get in the mail. Uh, so our topic today, we, we do have one, I promise. Um, <laughs> it's kind of born out of the fact that Eddie wasn't here for our unintentional zombie episode. <laughs> uh, Matthew and I digressed into a zombie episode over the holidays. Yeah, I feel like we did have a topic in mind when we started that episode, but I, I don't think it was that. And for some reason, I feel like we've done multiple zombie episodes now, and that's not a bad thing. You know, they're a staple of horror. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, we do often drift back to the undead. I mean, yeah, a lot of things are undead in our games. It makes sense. It's true. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. We don't do ghosts very often, though, weirdly enough. Which is interesting, considering that I'm in the middle of uh, rewatching The Haunting of Hill House, because uh, my boyfriend had not seen it. Oh. And I finally got him to watch Midnight Mass, because he's Catholic, so I was like, you're Catholic and you're a horror fan. Please watch this with me. Right. And after he watched it, he was like, that was amazing. What are the other shows that Mike Flanagan has done? And I'm like, well, the other ones that I've tried to get you to watch. Um, so now we're back <laughs> watching Hill House. And I'm assuming we're going to watch Bly Manor afterward. So I'm mm. like deep in ghost stories right now. Nice. And it, it, it's interesting because I've never I've never found ghost stories super compelling Um, when it comes right down to it. Mostly mm-hmm. because most ghosts just don't scare me. Right. Like, I'm not scared of an ephemeral entity that I can, like, put my hand through, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why I like the ghosts and things like Hill House and Blind Manor, because they can interact with you. They're very solid. Right. And that's a, a different way of looking at ghosts than what I, you know, grew up thinking of them as. Which is interesting because if you go back to gothic fiction and even Edwardian mm-hmm. fiction, ghosts were solid. So, like, that was originally right. how ghosts were perceived. And then we had this kind of 100-year... Uh, a digression of them being, like I said, ephemeral and, and see-through and Casper-like. And then now we're moving back that way. I find fascinating. It's like how, how horror tends to go in cycles. Blame Charles mm-hmm. Dickens. I oh, do really? blame Charles Dickens. Yeah. Specifically A Christmas Carol. It was Carol, yeah. Um, it was such a... Well, I, I can't attest to it to a certainty, but I did read at some point that Christmas Carol was such a popular piece of fiction that it was a bit a little like Lord of the Rings went on to mm-hmm. uh, affect uh, greatly fantasy fiction written after that point. The Christmas Carol did the same thing for ghost stories. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't, you know, and the way it portrays most of its ghosts, but not all, is uh, they are incorporeal and with the rattling of chains. And uh, that kind of thing. That was an invention, I think, of Dickens because uh, yeah. of the character of Jacob Marley. But yes, yes. Right, um, because... if, 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 oh, sorry, carry on, Eddie. Uh, I was going to say, like, if I remember correctly, the, the the metaphor of the change was specifically to represent his kind of servitude. Um, mm. it, it was it was it was a not a subtle analogy for like you you know this guy has been owned and trapped and and you you have kept him in this space, but it kind of went into more of a vague ghosts have chains because reasons. Even even Wraith the Oblivion has lots of chain iconography. I thought the chain, it. yeah, weren't, weren't the chains and Christmas Carol supposed to be like the bad things he did in life? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he couldn't uh, divest himself of all of his chains, or it would take an eternity for him to do so. Or, and that's why he came to warn Scrooge. Yeah, I'm gonna be very, very clear here. The only Christmas Carol I'm super familiar with are Muppets, so I'm I'm trying to like picture all this without <laughs> thinking of it being Sattler and Waldorf yeah, you singing know the Marley and Marley song. 
It's a fantastic adaptation. It's accessible, and I like it. There's nothing wrong with Muppets Christmas Carol. It's fantastic. I watch movie. it every year. Every year I watch it. Um, yeah, but it is funny because you're like, you're like, oh, the ghosts are ephemeral in Christmas Carol. And I'm like, well, really only the ghost of Christmas past is ephemeral because Christmas present is a giant Muppet and Christmas mm. future is like a big, scary, wraith looking dude. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you like... the only image I have is Muppets. If, if you like Mike Flanagan's uh, oeuvre, uh, which is currently on Netflix, I recommend checking out his slasher movie from a few years ago, Hush, which is also on Netflix. Uh, is on oh, the yeah. UK, I've got it, anyway. I've got it on my queue, I think. Hmm. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting one, because it's a sort of home invasion uh, slasher movie that is extended for the full duration of the movie. Uh, where the protagonist is a woman with deafness, yeah, and uh, the uh, and how it plays around with these sort of horror conventions based on that is quite interesting. It doesn't feel exploitative to me, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I, I think it's a it's a reasonably good slasher movie. It's worth checking out. Is the protagonist also played by his wife, Kate Siegel, who's in all of his movies or all of his shows? I, be- I believe I believe so. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she's a she's a good actress. I'm not saying that, you know, she, she's not. It's just interesting being like, oh, she got famous from doing his stuff. But she's good. So mm. I'm kind of sad that she didn't get famous some other way because now it just feels like, you know, nepotism. But like. Right. She's a good actress, and we don't, you know, yell at Ryan Murphy for putting the same three people in everything. So, I don't know. I mean, some people mm-hmm. do, but but yeah. So, like, actually, speaking of ghosts, even in an American Horror Story, especially in the Murder House seasons, like you get some really good solid ghost stuff, which is just mm-hmm. you know kind of changing the genre for me because I used to be like, oh, ghosts, haunted things, not scary, you know, and now I'm I'm I'm, I'm getting more into them as they are presented to me differently. And I think, honestly, it comes down to something we talked about a little bit way back when we were discussing Wraith, was that um, intangible characters are just really hard to make narratively interesting. Right. Uh, so it, it's interesting to see, it, 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 to, again, see it come back around. Um, because I think also Lovecraft Country had solid ghosts, I want to say. Uh, I haven't watched that. Okay. But I believe you. Um. Uh, Lovecraft Country is definitely a show where I kind of watched it and experienced it, and I really loved it, but I also don't remember much about it, and I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> that happens to me with a lot of stuff. I'm like, I'm like, I definitely saw that. That's that's all I can tell you. It's a thing I've seen. That was definitely a thing that happened, and I liked. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, I, it, but I mean, again, it's interesting to see how horror goes in cycles, even with with zombies, like you know the the fast zombie, slow zombie. Um, it, it does seem like the zombie genre tends to move away from the classic depiction but then mm-hmm. that seems to get too far for some people and so there becomes counter examples that bring it closer towards the classic formula and then that gets delved into for a while and it moves away again so there's kind of like this ebb and flow away from kind of the Romero-ish zombies if you will mm-hmm. yeah it also really depends on how you define zombies True. um which is you know a topic that horror movie folks have talked about forever. Like, are they a specific kind of animated corpse? Are they any kind of animated corpse? If you get turned mindless by a virus, but you didn't actually die, are you a zombie? Like this, this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And that's 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 really interesting to me. Um, which actually does bring us to today's topic. Um, is that we want to talk about zombies a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But in the context of, of Dystopia Rising Evolution, which is currently on sale on Drive RPG. Uh, for our 10-year anniversary celebration. Yes, it is 10% of the original cost. So it's yes. very cheap right now. It's 90% off. Um, so, Eddie, how do zombies in Dystopia Rising work? Because I know that they are a little different from pretty much all the media that we have talked about. Yeah, and it's actually one of the things that I really dug when um, we had the chance to license uh, mm-hmm. the Rising property in that um, it is the near, quote, question mark future um it's been about three or four generations since one quote the fall when that happens is vague and right. nebulous by design um but the fall uh, th- there was an infection there was a disease that went through the world but the disease is actually a fungus 
um, which has some kind of psychic properties to where if people die, um, they enter a concept called the grave mind, mm-hmm. uh, where they actually can, can relive certain parts of their life. And then they come back to life, but they, their original corpse does not get animated. Rather, a whole new body is built by this fungus. So it's a copy of you is made after you die. And mm. so like a lot of copies, you lose something along the way. So in DRE terms, um, if char- you know, your player character can die and come back, but then you start to lose your bonds with, with you, you, you recognize, oh, I used to be married to this person, but you don't have the same feelings of romantic love towards them. Or, hey, this person used to be my friends. I recognize they're my friends, but I don't actually feel any kind can of friendship to them. So you have to kind of rebuild those relationships each time. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, these changes erode you enough to where you don't come back from the grave mind. So when you're rebuilt, you, you come back mindless because your mind does not get replicated in the same way. Right. So the zombies in this are not actually animated corpses. They are mindless clones, really, is the best way to describe them. And they are... Are they living, breathing still? Like, do they have to eat? Are they animated exclusively by the fungus or the grapevine? Yeah, they are uh, animated by the grapevine. Um, grapevine, grape, grapevine, grapevine. They're, they're, they're raisins. They're, they're all animated raisins. Through the grapevine, <laughs> just about to lose my mind. <laughs> that actually works really well. It does. It scans actually. That's, that's kind of scary. Heard it through the grapevine. Okay, sorry. I'm done. I'm done. I'm getting ready for Dystopia Rising, the musical. It could happen. <laughs> totally totally um uh but uh so if people die and come back uh, uh eventually their bodies uh, uh come back to human state right um so the idea is that the more you recognize who you are the fungus adapts to that so it can also it works in animals right so um if an animal dies it comes back but it comes back kind of as it visualizes itself so a, a, a feral dog becomes a bigger, scarier dog. Um, you know, lizards who feel like their predators become back as giant dragons or whatever. I love the idea of like a tiny, like yappy dog coming back. It's like an actual like mastiff. Right. It's, <laughs> arr, it's fierce. <laughs> um, and, and also there are uh, uh, raiders um, who are people who uh, – have resorted to cannibalism and so they eat the flesh the tainted flesh and that they haven't died and come back but they have started to lose portions of their humanity uh so a lot of what dystopia rising does is it's the same question that all think zombie media has which is what constitutes being human you know like what where, where does the line between humanity get drawn uh but it approaches it from different ways because it's not just the you don't have the, oh, I got bits, so I'm going to die and come back as a zombie. Lots of characters die and come back. That's not necessarily right. a problem. Um, the problem is doing it too often, and you don't always know mm-hmm. what that number is. Uh, in the original Dystopia Rising rule book, because Evolution is actually the second edition of the game. Um, the first one was not published by Onyx Path. But in right. the original one, you, you have a number of points. Literally, it's like quarters on a machine or lives in a video game. You, you, you come back three times, and then that's it. Uh, And I felt that was really uh, boring, frankly, because in my experience, what will happen is that players will go, cool, then I can just die twice with no consequences. It's Mm -hmm. only the last one that matters. Uh, So I wanted to have each time you die be potentially dangerous. So it's actually kind of a more or less a saving throw um, where you have to get a number of successes equal to the number of times you died. So the first time is pretty much as long as you get a success, you're fine. Um, But over time, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so each time could be dangerous and, and of course you could spend momentum if you want to to stay alive that's why the player characters generally don't become zombies but there's still that chance it's one of my favorite parts of dre that russian roulette style of mm-hmm. uh, you know mm-hmm. is this my time now or do i get to cling on for a bit longer because you know that if you keep pushing yourself eventually your luck is going to run out it's yep. um it plays very nicely with the generally desperate feel of much of the setting i think the Mm -hmm. the fact that you know people do have to take risks they do have to um push themselves in order to survive and make their communities prosper but in doing so they're risking well undeath well and, and permanent death 
Mm. Right. And uh, that was something that we discussed when we first started developing it is because zombie media to my limit, I've not watched a whole bunch of it, but what, what I have seen, but it does seem to kind of fall into two rough camps, which is uh, earlier zombie media tends to be very dystopian uh, right. for like a better term. It's like, you're going to get overrun. You're, you're going to get killed. It's just a matter of time. And we're really watching to see kind of how that futile struggle plays out. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most zombie movies play like a, a, a game of 10 candles where like by, by, by the end of two or three hours, you're all dead. Right. But with the recent increase in longer form zombie fiction, Walking Dead being the most iconic example, um, we've moved towards the idea of, of there are clear protagonists who, even if they get bits, that doesn't always require them to become a zombie. Uh, um, characters will die and there will be turnover, but there'll be certain characters that linger for longer. And they're generally better at surviving than the non-protagonist characters in the fiction. Mm-hmm. And since StoryPath is really good about having competent protagonists, that was kind of the tack that was taken with this. Is like you are you know, the, the, the default name for player character is survivor. You are the survivors. You are the people who are likely to not only survive but start to thrive, which is an interesting, again, take for zombie fiction is that this is not fatalistic. In fact, you're, you're – there's been four generations of zombies, so the characters and the, the cultures have developed certain uh, methods and, and tactics and even abilities to kind of counteract these. So uh, the zombies kind of move in general towards more of a background threat. They're, they're, they're not individually very scary, mm-hmm. uh, but in groups they become scary or specific kinds of zombies become scary or zombies in very specific circumstances become scary. Uh, so it, 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 it's more, I, I describe it sometimes as like, it's a bit like the weather. Uh, sometimes you have a really bad day and sometimes the weather can actually kill you, but in general, you don't get mad at the weather. It's just a thing that you have to kind of endure. I mean, I do. Just shaking, well, shaking fist at clouds. <laughs> I had no idea you were the old man from the Simpsons. I am. I am. I am. Very um, nice. that, so in, in DRE, uh, what, what do the zombies like want why why do they attack because obviously in most zombie media it's to eat flesh and brains that's just kind of how it is right. like zombies mm-hmm. want to eat flesh or brains or some combination of the two um right. in in dre is that the case or are they just driven by the fungus to find non-infected hosts to move on to or what uh, so the uh, let me take the second one first is because everyone is infected at this right, point. right okay yeah uh, um so it, it, it's it's <laughs> I don't want to use modern examples uh, because this was created before COVID, but certainly it, it, there, there's the idea of you aren't. There's no one who isn't really not infected with with this this fungus. I mean, that's that's uh, literally one of the very early like reveals in Walking Dead is that everyone's infected. Right. So if you die from any reason, you become a zombie. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. The, the 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 bite becomes kind of a misdirect. Yeah. Exactly. Um. So it's not that it, it is generally just out of, of hunger. Uh, uh, but also um, it's implied in the text. It's not spelled out, but my kind of read on it is that uh, much like how the fungus kind of pulls together to create new bodies, it's naturally kind of drawn together. And so humans get together because they need to have safety. Uh, but then zombies are attracted to large groups of people. So there's this kind of constant mm-hmm. push and pull of you don't want to become too big of a population because you will continually attract zombies. But if you're too small, you may not be able to defend yourself. Uh, and there are certain actions, obviously, that attract zombies more likely than other ones um, in, in the world that is called the dinner bell. Uh, so like uh, if they're if a small-ish community, you're probably not going to ring the dinner bell as often. But when you do, it's going to mean more. Whereas a large community, the dinner bells run pretty regularly because there's lots of options and lots of reasons to attract zombies but you have more chance to defend yourself right so. uh, but yes they're generally motivated by just raw primal hunger hmm. interesting i always like wonder about that with 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 zombie media if there's going to be some other reason or if they're sound driven or sight driven or smell driven or like what how it's going to work because there's only so many you know, things you can do kind of with a zombie. I was really surprised mm-hmm. when I edited DRE um, how different it was 
from Mozambique, mm-hmm. India, you know, because I am a, I, as, as, as Matthew and I talked about, you know, very, very recently, I have, I have seen a lot of zombie media over the years um, mm. and, and very much enjoyed most of it. And so getting DRA, I was kind of like, what's, what's this going to be? And it is, it is so different from pretty much every zombie thing that I've re- read or seen before. And I'm curious because I didn't listen to the episode because I was cruelly excluded and shoved into a box. Uh, <laughs> and not at all because I was sick. But um, I, I've not watched a ton. I, I, and when I did study uh, zombie media, I, I was also kind of – because there's a lot of Mad Max DNA in here too. And I wanted to make sure right. that both sides of that were replicated. Um, so I was also looking at uh, – you know, Day of Triffids and other kind of post-apocalyptic media that aren't necessarily yeah. zombie specific. So I'm curious, as folks, you folks are a little more versed than I am, um, maybe you can help our, help me understand how DRE is different and and what and does it is it still considered to be quantifiable zombie media because it's post-apocalyptic zombie? Is that enough to qualify it as? Is there other pieces that maybe would make it more traditionally zombie? That's what I'm curious about. Well, the in terms of setting, first and foremost, there aren't that many zombie uh, pieces of zombie media that are set far after the incident. Um, oh, okay. Because, well, at least in my experience, most movies and TV shows tend to take place during or immediately following the outbreak. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Because it provides a nice grounding, and you know, it, it means that there's, uh, I guess, less buy-in that the, the, the viewer mm-hmm. needs, and with TV, that's very important. So with uh, DRE, the fact that this is the state of the world now, and it has been for some time, uh, provides a different kind of challenge. It does make it feel, to me, the, the reader and role player, um, more Mad Max-like than, let's say, Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead-like. Right. Um, and also because it doesn't shy away from the fact that there are survivors. Uh, hence, you know, well, you're playing them. Uh, whereas in a lot of zombie media, survivors are a, um, a radical rarity, and that's often what the movie is defined by. We are the only humans left. Uh, whereas in this game, communities, your lineages, and therefore strains are all present. So they're not all necessarily in the same place, and they're not all mm. living together in perfect harmony but they do exist in their own individual bastions across the wasteland. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it does give it a very different feel. In, in terms of uh, zombie media, I guess it feels quite close to some of the latter arcs of the Walking Dead comic. I can't speak That's for the That's literally what I was going to say. It was like, it seems like you skipped the first four or five seasons of yeah. Walking Dead. Yeah, I, I've not seen all of the TV show, but I know that the um, yeah in the comic, eventually they do start setting up their communities, and there's something like three or four of them in relatively close proximity with each different sort of philosophies governing them. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of that feel to DRE, that uh, if the zombies aren't swarming you right now, your biggest problems are going to be probably with other survivors because you're going to all be combating each other for resources, whether it's the necessaries or the luxuries, mm-hmm. and uh, and getting into the, I guess, greater thought conflicts of, well, how do we continue to rebuild? What direction does that rebuilding take? Um, uh, in short, how should we school our children? How should we? What should we make people think? Uh, what are our aspirations now beyond surviving mm-hmm. one day to the next? Because it's past that point, yep. and I think that 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 for me makes it quite a captivating setting because it's very different from even other uh, TTRPGs that deal with zombie apocalypses. Don't tend to situate themselves in that uh, time or setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I, I, I definitely get. I mean, even in one of the earlier arcs of Walking Dead, the like the whole governor arc, that's right. really where zombies start to take a backseat, and they're not as much of a problem until they are, you know, mm-hmm. because that's really more about these two communities: the 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 community of Rick's group living at the prison and the governor's community. 
and them, you know, having their own conflicts and everything. And it's really more about the governor being the bad guy than it is about the zombies being the bad guy. Right. Um, and so it's 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 not until, you know, the humans let the zombies take over that it gets zombies as threat again. Mm-hmm. Um, but at, at 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 that point, the bad humans are using them kind of as a weapon more than they are, you know, doing things of their own accord. Right. Um, which I could definitely see happening in DRE, you know, like if there's two groups that are fighting and it's possible to like redirect a horde toward the opposing group's camp, then do it. Mm-hmm. Like that's 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 a thing that would definitely happen. Um so yeah, I I definitely see like later season Walking Dead vibes from it. Um mm-hmm. also like like you said, Mad Mad Max, like warriors kind of vibes because right. all of the um all of the strains are so different. Mm-hmm. And the way that the different uh, character types have their community set up is very different. Like some are very culty, uh, some some are not, uh, but they all have their own kind of thing going on. And so, if you're playing members of one of the strains, like you 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 might have conflicts with one of the other ones. Um, sadly, I can't remember almost any of them off the top of my head, aside from the ones that worship music, because those are the ones I always wanted to play. Right. Yeah. The. Uh, the- <laughs> The King and Queen's courts. Yeah, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, my, my, my favorite is that the televisions, the people who uh, worship television signals and use those as doctrine. Right, because there really aren't that many of them floating around anymore. Right. Um, there's also uh, uh, the nuclear family, um, which is uh, kind of a throwback to 50s uh, ideology, but uh-huh. through an unusual lens. Like, for example, there's a mother and a father and children, but who fills those roles depends on the nature of the cult. Right, right, right. It could be like any age, any gender. Right. So like you could be the father, I could be the child, Matthew could be the mother, and but you're filling those roles in the family. Matthew, do you want to be Eddie's mother? Nah. No, I, I think Eddie's um <laughs> and I think I'm Eddie's dead. good. I think Eddie's good with that. <laughs> Throw him out to the zombies. It'll we've, be fine. Yeah. We've we've raised a fine kid. He can do <laughs> he can do it on his own yeah. now. It's time for Off us to find world. a new one. Maybe we should ask Rich whether he needs uh... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> New parent figures, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the those the religions and philosophies of DRE are very interesting, and they're what surprised me the most when I came to the game. Uh, I I was expecting a ge- a post apocalyptic zombie game, of course, and mm-hmm. uh, I hadn't actually participated in the live action role play, and I don't think it's as large over in the UK as it is in the US. No, it's so. Not. Uh, I had very limited exposure to it. And so when I was reading through the book and becoming familiar with the fact that, oh, okay, so this isn't just a, isn't just a scavenging and survival game. There is a lot more to this setting than meets the eye. Uh, it, that really, obviously it provides depth. But for me, a lot of people who have followed any of my work now know that I like hooks. I like things that drag me into games mm. and, and the religions of the wasteland. Uh, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, the final nights. There's something very weird, mm. but uh, I don't know whether I would go for one as a protagonist, but I could definitely see them cropping up as quite unstable antagonists. <laughs> um, likewise, uh, the Church of Darwin, uh, very brutal, um, but as the name would probably imply, um, not necessarily the most merciful or charitable of religions. But I, um, yeah, I, I think the religions really add something to DRE that other games of this nature lack. And that um, kind of leads to another point that, again, I, I would love y'all's feedback on, but. Um... The a lot of the zombie media I've consumed also has an edge of satire, and is am mm-hmm. I just seeing that in there, or is that valid? I mean, because I know like even some of the comedic takes on zombies, um, like Shaun of the Dead, um, there, there's a satirical component to it, um, but also the uh, you know the original Night of the Living Dead was was, was a, a satire on consumption. Uh, so I mean, it, it, am I putting too much into this, or is that actually a genuine component of zombie media uh well uh, yeah it is i well I, I guess if i wanted to be snobbish about it i'd say it is when the zombie media is good 
Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, and so I know, uh, as Garth Marenghi says, I know writers use subtext and they're all cowards. But <laughs> the but yeah, the Dawn of the Dead, uh, I guess, metaphor for uh, consumerism. And one could say Day of the Dead was all about um, uh, the, the nuclear fears of the 1980s. Right. Uh, and, you know, when when there's metaphors, they're either heavy or they're not. But uh, one could argue that for all its success, um, something like The Walking Dead doesn't have that. It is quite pure in a way in that it is about humans surviving a zombie apocalypse and while there are some character based stories within it of this is what this character has to overcome it doesn't make you come away rethinking your stance on x you know uh, so i i don't see something like the walking dead as satirical or terribly metaphorical whereas um there's plenty of zombie movies and other TV series uh, that try to illustrate things relating to class or mm-hmm. yeah, or, or various aspects of culture, whether that's mocking them or just trying to shine a spotlight on them. Uh, so, no, you're, you're on the money. And, uh, the, mm-hmm. and DRE obviously does that a great deal, whether it's with right. the religions, whether it's with the lineages. It is carving up society in a... What what would be a poetic way of saying it? Through a glass darkly, because mm-hmm. it's saying, well, you know, if you if you got some of the more fringe groups that exist now, and you threw them a few hundred years into the future and put them in a zombie apocalypse, how much more fringe would they get? They they're still mm-hmm. the same kinds of people as they were uh, mm-hmm. way back in the twenty first century, but now that they don't have to now that they're not beholden to anyone they're certainly not beholden to any laws and codes of ethics are nice to have they're not necessarily guarantees in the wasteland uh it means you can sometimes poke fun at groups sometimes you can really make them look horrific as horrific as they are but without the gloves on mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so yeah a long answer to your question but yes definitely there's I think there's a lot of satire in in zombie horror. Zombie media has has almost always, as I kind of mentioned in the last episode about this, it it, it usually reflects a, a current fear. Um, uh, okay. G- generally, when I'm thinking about like American zombie films, which most zombie films are American, there there are some exceptions, sure. but most of them are. Um, there have been lots of scholarly articles about this, so I'm not going to go like super hardcore into it. But the very early zombie movies were about fear, mostly of blackness and of the, the other things like white zombie, right? Because okay. they were really rooted in the like Haitian zombie, you know, and 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 the voodoo religion, etc. Mm, right. Um, I, I am not an expert on any of this, so I'm just talking about things that I have studied for like school. True. Um, but then you get into the Romero zombies and a lot of those do I mean like obviously Night of the Living Dead has a whole subplot about you know race relations right um and if you watch the end credit sequence it's it's just blatantly about that mm-hmm. <laughs> um and then you get into the 70s and you have Vietnam um you still have some like Cold War stuff going on um you have I mean after Vietnam that's 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 when you started getting a lot of the like grosser mindless horde zombies because it's like that's kind of people were seeing those images right um of 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 actual atrocities happening um and also you get the whole mall metaphor which is about you know capitalism and consumer culture and this and the other um and then you get into the 80s and 90s and that's when the zombies turned into being like medical for the most part it became a virus more than Mm -hmm. it was just a thing that happened um and that's a direct response to the AIDS crisis and the whole oh. outbreaks of the late seventies. Okay. Um, there was, there was literally a, a really early article on AIDS called like night of the living dead too. Wow. Um, so like that's, that's a, a direct response to that. And now almost all of our zombie media is medicalized, which makes sense because as the, you know, world has developed as it has, the especially vulnerable populations tend to live in large cities and live close together. Mm. And as we've seen from the past couple of years, a virus can spread pretty easily. Yeah. Um, so most, most zombie media is 
virus now, whether it's Resident Evil or 28 Days Later or, you know, any of the kind of newer re- re- remakes of things or The Walking Dead, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so zombie media is really interesting is that it, it, it almost always directly reflects current fears um, and especially fears of things that we can't communicate with mm-hmm. and therefore can't like fight as easily, you know? Mm hmm. So I think that DRE does that really well too, but yeah. Yeah. And I will going back to um you mentioning the end of Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Uh, it's and um and I guess to put it mildly, race relations of the time. Um it's that's a, that's an interesting one I was recently asked about in an interview uh, regarding that um <clears throat> the trap book of transgressive horror that Eddie mm-hmm. and I contributed to. Uh, Mm -hmm. It was regarding uh, George A. Romero's politics. And uh, I can't say again for a certainty what his politics were uh, regarding uh, regarding class, regarding race, regarding much of anything, except what I can infer from his movies. But it had always been my assumption that Night of the Living Dead was trying to make a statement uh, by putting a black male lead on the screen, which was a rarity in, in horror, especially well in pretty much any media uh, in the 1960s. Um, but not only that, the ending, as you point out, you know, um, the character of Ben gets shot by a bunch of good old boys and, and his body's sort of dragged out of the farmhouse. Mm-hmm. And it's very striking images. And so I always assumed there was some kind of civil rights message to that, or George A. Romero was re- very angry at that point. And I was told during this interview that he always denied that after the fact. When he was interviewed, he was uh, he was asked, you know, were you trying to make a statement? What were you, What was the meaning of this? And he was just... He would just categorically say, no, there's no statement there. It's just a horror movie. I don't know how coy he's being, if if that's the case. If he's just mm-hmm. trying to say, read into it what you like. You know, the, me- the message is on the screen. I don't need to explain it to you, because plenty of directors, David Lynch is very fond of saying things like that. Yeah. Um, or whether you know, some of these things are coincidental, but you can still take messages from them that can be positive um, in the sense that it can open your mind a little um, mm. just by, just by the fact that, you know, characters are re- responding or re- are interacting with each other on the screen or in the game in a way that they do in real life at the time. And so you as the viewer looking at it through the lens of a horror movie can think, Oh, actually this is, this isn't right. This is this is what's going on outside right now. Just take the zombies out, and this is a documentary, right? Uh, so yeah, um, I just thought I'd rattle on about that because it interested me. No, and it's kind of why I bring it up because um, uh, one of the things I remember working with uh, the folks at Eshton Media about while working on this was dialing in uh, uh, not only the religions, but also uh, the strains, because the strains are also kind of metaphors for particularly American cultural pockets uh, in, in a way that I always found interesting. Uh, so there's some obvious ones like, like Americans, which are kind of your rural broad stereotype. Um, but also there are like the Baywalkers and New Yorkers, which are more specific stereotypes for Boston and New York. And how those kind of evolve into uh, uh, tribal dynamics, uh, I found to be interesting. But we were trying to also make sure that we present those in a way that the satire is still there, but it doesn't become overbearing because you, you want, these have to be playable characters. Same with the religions. Um, you, you, you don't want to lose uh, the hysterical edge, but you also want to say, oh, no, I, I would have fun playing that. Um, so, uh, mm-hmm. uh, for example, one of the characters are the irons, um, who were originally presented as a slave, uh, uh strain. And that's one thing I, I remember we talked early on, um, was let's, let's move that to where they, they're no longer that they, 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 they right. freed themselves. Uh, and, um, luckily, uh, the folks I worked with, um, were completely on board with that. That's just something they wanted. And then there's one thing they said, like, you know, there are certain things we need you to evolve. We need help to make sure that we're 
evolving these in a good direction. So uh, it was it was great that they gave me that trust to be able to say, okay, I think we should go this, we should go that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, the fact they have something like the Elitariat, which are so clearly the one percent, um, and, and particularly the the pure bloods. Um, the, you know, they are a group that who are in charge. They are, see themselves in charge. Uh, they're kind of uh, shabby venture, which my initial notes had for them. <laughs> shabby venture, and, and because yeah, they, you know, they look nice, but they're you know their their suit still is patched up with thread work and and you know whatever they can find around. But it's, it's nice for the area. Um, and how that relates because you do need community leaders, like you know it, it it's it's there's a very clear like oh well they're in charge and they think they're best because they have the best resources, but also the person with the best resources who wants to lead a community is probably a good person to have in charge in this specific environment. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the satire becomes a little more nuanced and therefore it can moves into things that you can then play with the table and, and you can dial it in as you like. Um, but you're right. Uh, and my experience was that a lot of zombie media and horror media, I would say even, writ large right um tends to be a little more political whether intentionally or not yeah i mean i i, I think that's often the case and also it, it tends to be a little progressive mm-hmm. um that's just kind of how horror is on some level uh it is i don't want to get too into politics here obviously but sure. uh if you like i i watch a lot of horror movies um and I, I am, an, am an apologist for a lot of the big, long series of horror movies, things like Saw mm-hmm. and the Purge series, right? I I love those movies, but the Purge really is, like, a little too politically prescient sometimes <laughs> when I'm mm-hmm. watching it, um, especially if you get into the, the TV show as well, which I wish it had more than two seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also um, the Saw movies, like... Really, uh, quite a lot of them are about the failings of like the healthcare system. Oh wow! <laughs> and you kind of don't realize that at first, obviously. But the more you get into it, the more you're like, if all these people had just had access to healthcare, a lot of this might 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 not have happened. <laughs> um, <laughs> and there are a lot of other things, you know, going on there too. But like, like they have, you know, yes, there's a lot of cops in some movies, which I know is a is a hot button topic for a lot of people. Right. But they're almost always bad. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like you say often they are the villain or they end up being corrupt somehow uh so yeah like there's there's even messages in that kind of thing which you don't expect and they tend to be really progressive like many like granted there there, there are some that obviously kind of go the other route things like the hills have eyes for instance right. um which is just gross and weird um and there are a, a lot of horror movies tend to be kind of ableist which is also not good either sure. right. so there's 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 both sides of the coin there but overall, I think a lot of them tend to be somewhat progressive, which is interesting. And it's, it's interesting you mentioned ableism because that was something uh, uh, I specifically wanted to do with Dystopia Rising. Uh, Let's make it super ableist. No. <laughs> yes, that was my goal, was to make it as ableist as fucking possible. <laughs> you're, a, you're a worse monster than anything in this book, Eddie Webb. The monster is really us. Uh, no. Um, <laughs> one of my Reverse it. One of my arguments really early on was that there is this weird – Catch twenty two of of apocalypse fiction specifically, uh-huh. where a lot of people there, there's very much this thing of like how would you survive a zombie apocalypse and there's very strong well the kind of social Darwinism um, for people who don't understand what social Darwinism mm-hmm. actually is uh, of like oh, the strongest must survive and and the weak will, will perish, uh, but my counterpoints to that initially when I when I offered to work on the project was, was twofold. Uh, one is that zombie media specifically, a lot of characters end up disabled through the course of the movies or television show. Uh, people mm-hmm. lose hands. They, you know, uh, their, their, their legs get injured. Uh, they lose an eye. Uh, and so my argument was on the one hand, a lot of zombie media intentionally or not is about struggling with disability. And, mm-hmm. and trying to come to terms with this ability, the average zombie protagonist on a long enough timeline will become disabled. Right. So we can't avoid talking about disability. Uh, but on the other hand, um, and something a little more central to DRE as a whole, is uh, early on, uh, a friend of mine gave me access to a great book called A Paradise Made in Hell, 
which was a nonfiction book studying communities that developed ad hoc in the course of disasters. Like uh, Katrina was oh, I think, okay. the big uh, study, but also things like uh, earthquakes in Tokyo and stuff like that. And consistently sociologists found that people were much more inclined to help each other than fend for themselves. So um, the idea of the able leaving the disabled behind to save themselves does not pair out in human groups and also does not make sense within the fiction of this genre as a whole. Uh, so I did hire several disabled folks, including myself, obviously, but I mean other disabled folks who were not, not the same disability as me to write on the book to make sure that that was really adequately addressed. Uh, and something, I mean, even though I am disabled, I, I completely agree that not every book needs to talk about disability, right? There's some books that just, it just, it should be just disability is as much or little as you want to deal with impossible and you move the fuck on. Kind of like how we did it in like Pirates of Mugmire, for instance. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a sidebar where it's like, yes, you have peg legs and hook hands. That's cool or not. And you deal with it how you want to, but we're not going to give you stats for that. Right. Uh, but um, for this game, it's like that, that was relevant. And specifically, it was relevant in the sense that it's not relevant. Um, people have assisted devices and we talk about assist devices and how those work. Uh, there's a character in here who is in a wheelchair. Even before the combat wheelchair was a thing in D&D space, we had a character in a wheelchair. That's Rocket Rose, right? Yep, Rocket Rose. And she's a diesel jock. She drives around the big truck. Um, so, I mean, it, which makes sense. It's the, okay, this is the thing I could do well. And uh, this is how I contribute to the group. And there's an entire strain called diesel jocks that just focus on driving vehicles. Again, that strong Mad Max influence. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that she's disabled does not matter for the narrative um, until it becomes relevant to the amount that the players want to make it relevant. Right. Uh, so it was, it was definitely, again, it goes back to uh, uh, the politics degree. I, I definitely came in with a certain uh, agenda, which is I wanted to portray an apocalyptic game where disability was recognized and also discounted simultaneously. Uh, and luckily, a lot of the writers gravitated to that. The, again, Ashton Media folks, that was an area when I pointed out, they said, actually, that is the place we want to do better in. So thank you for bringing that up. They were extremely supportive of all the stuff that I kind of wanted to inject into it while keeping true to what they wanted. Because my, my goal is not to make my game. My goal is to make their property mm -hmm. make the most sense for a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, so um, it, it's it, it, it was a, a point of frustration for me because I don't know how many times I would watch The Walking Dead and I would see, oh, cool, the disabled folks are shown to be badass. And then I would talk to Walking Dead fans and they were getting the exact opposite message. And I'm like, are we watching the same show? Yeah, yeah that's funny with Walking Dead. I remember it must have been in the first season. It wasn't a storyline that was in the comic. Uh, but it was in the first season when the characters go in, uh, enter Atlanta and mm -hmm. they come across a uh, a gang and assume they are raiders and thieves and the like. And I think they are, but they're doing it on behalf of a care home that the mm -hmm. staff have abandoned early on into the uh, epidemic. And so the gang have basically moved in to take care of the elderly. Yeah, I think that one no of one them, it's like, it. it's like his grandmother or something. Mm. And I think it's uh, the game This War of Mine, which is a game I dearly love. It's influencing a, mm -hmm. a uh, another game I'm working on presently. But <clears throat> uh, I remember when This War of Mine came out, and it was uh, quite rightly praised for much of its gameplay. But it's uh, broadly based on the conflict that was going on between uh, Serbia, Bosnia, and the entire, I guess, broken up Yugoslavia in the mm -hmm. uh, early and mid-90s. And part of the game has you... Well, you basically have the choice of are you going to steal from your neighbours in order to guarantee your own survival? And you don't have to, but you can, and your characters take a morale hit for doing so, which is a nice video game, and it's translated into the board game as well, uh, mechanic where if you are actually taking from innocence effectively you take there's a toll to doing so 
And I recall, just to echo what you said, Eddie, about how communities actually stick together and strengthen in adversity. Yes, there are definitely examples that have been in the past of how people do sometimes, uh, I guess, they'll ostracize someone that they think is going to slow them down. Sure. But I recall when this War of Mine came out, there was a uh, an essay that was released from someone who had lived through uh, the the war in the Balkans, mm-hmm. and she was writing. I believe I believe it was a woman uh, about how she very much um, respected this War of Mine, especially how it was drawing more eyes onto a conflict about which, outside of Europe, not many people knew about it. Really, it seemed, but she fundamentally disagreed with the ability in the game to steal from your neighbours because her experience, which was all um, recorded, you know, plenty of survivors from that time, um, was that we gathered around the people who needed the help. That If Mm -hmm. there was someone who was physically injured, we would do everything we could to, to... keep them safe if they were unable to look after themselves whether they were uh, whether it was through a combination of compassion and guilt um Mm -hmm. you know a sense of social obligation and also there is a pragmatic element of if you start cutting out the people who you determine as weak at what point does some do you fall on that list right uh that that's where sometimes in zombie media, post-apocalyptic media, that entire sort of raider, uh, I guess, mindset starts falling down because as soon as you can show that an, another human being is expendable, you're putting a clock above your head. Mm-hmm. Of well, at some point you're going to be the person who's expendable. Not many people want to put themselves in that position. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, uh, uh, it comes across really well in DRE because whether it's through the religions, and again, some of them are brutal, yeah, there sure. are these multiple communities that their fundament is basically, we will protect our own, we will protect ourselves because right. no one is going to do it for us. So we will look for converts, we will look for strays. And we will we will try and build a community that keeps everyone safe because it's the best thing we can do. Even if some of sometimes their motives beyond that or their philosophy beyond that is harmful or abusive, it you know still still works for society. Right, exactly, and and I think that was kind of what I I, I saw in the property was that um, the abuses are more likely to come from more cultish behavior than an explicit. Uh, 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 social Darwinism. Um, and I've always felt that like people's perceptions of how humans work in adversity, this is just my theory. I don't have any evidence back this up, but I feel like it's a fundamental misreading of the Stanford prison experiment from the seventies mm-hmm. because there's this horribly unethical experiment where people were given power over each other and they horribly abused it. But that was in a very specific environment and was also a highly unethical experiment that has since had some doubt cast on its conclusions for it um prisons are very specific social environments that aren't really replicated in other areas uh whereas again you know looking at disaster areas is much closer to post-apocalyptic environments and and like matthew said uh, wartime uh, areas uh, natural Mm -hmm. disasters whatever we do see more consistently that people do help each other out and so seeing a game which is about community protection and community building was interesting uh but also Again, I wanted to kind of reflect specifically the American genre of post-apocalypse mm-hmm. films, which zombies kind of touch on. But The Walking Dead thing is the best example of it, – it's also about the American road trip mythos, right? If this area doesn't work out, we'll just move on to find another area that works for us. Whereas if you look at, like, say, uh, British apocalyptic literature, it's much more about making this space work because it's coming from their perspective of World War II and the bombings. So it's the, we're here, this is our home, we're not moving, so we have to make this work by whatever means necessary. Whereas Derry and other American apocalypse feel much more like, well, well, this place sucks, so let's just find another one, or make another one, because there's plenty of land. Yeah, totally. Well, we're, we're near time. Look at us. Woohoo! We talked <laughs> about zombies. 
I, I I do really like DRE. Um, we have I think t- there's 24 different strains you can play in the game. Yep. Uh, which are in like eight kind of loose categories, but it's still that's a lot of options for playable characters, which is very cool. Mm-hmm. And then of course you add the religion on top of that if you want to you know in- interact with that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, what one thing I did want to ask before we go is in in DRE because there is so much like factioning in there. Mm-hmm. Um. Is it possible and encouraged to play a mixed group or is it more encouraged to play a single strain? Kind of like we've talked about with Vampire, where sometimes like you actually want to play like all one clan game, you know? Um, I, I think kind of similar to Vampire, actually, it's a good analogy in a sense that um, I think both are options depending on what kind of experience you want. Uh, like, for example, um, let's go back to uh, Diesel Jocks. I could totally see a game where it's a bunch of effectively post-apocalyptic car thieves going around fast and furious style, just trying to reclaim different vehicles and, and that whole vehicular lifestyle being the thing. Um, but I think it's more likely that you're going to have a core settlement as a home base. And that's going to be a, a wide mixture of people. So um, that's in my experience during playtesting, it's closer to like say a, a, a heist or a leverage show style thing where you have Diesel Jock who's the wheel person, you have um, the Yorker who's the muscle, and you have the elitariat who or the um, pure one who's the, the talker in the face. Um, people kind of will fill different roles based on their specialties at times, but there are there are tensions between those, and then you get the balance of. Well, we're all from, say, Philadelphia, but I don't <laughs> like your group. So if someone attacks Philly, then screw them. But then if we're safe, then now I can get back to my frustrations with you. Right. That makes sense. I like it. I'm 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 always curious with, with, with games how much mixing they encourage for for play or how much they do not. Um, just because that's that's an interesting thing to talk about at the game table too. Is when you all sit down and it's like, are we all going to play one faction? Are we going to play different factions? How are we going to do this? You know, is is this game going to be about the nomad clans going across the country, or is it going to be set in one city? You know, right? Um, it, and all all those options are there. So yes, but in my experience from a, a design perspective, if you offer a lot of options in the core book, there's a kind of an implicit assumption that mixing will happen. Uh, that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why, for example, Pugmire was so focused on dogs because I didn't necessarily – you can certainly have cats and whatever else in your your party. But mm-hmm. the idea was you're generally playing dogs and dogs are as a group. And so the game is kind of not built around that but certainly heavily leaned towards that. Same with Monarchies of Mal. You generally assume you're all playing cats. Whereas mm-hmm. D&D, traditionally, it's the, oh, well, I'll play the elf and you play the dwarf and you play the human and you play the you know, kobold or whatever. And, and you're, you're meant to be a mixed group. Um, so I, I think from a design perspective, if the game presents you a whole bunch of options, it's assumed that, and then some, to the point where sometimes people don't think about the alternatives. Cause I know when we first talked about, uh, a, a one clan game, there's a lot of discussion in this court about that. It's like, you could do that. Or like, that seems like an <laughs> odd idea. How, how would that happen? How would you, you know, people have questions about how you would run that. And it's like, just, just do, I mean, you know, it's, there, there's very minor logistical things you have to adjust, but really not that many. Um, yeah. But I think it was just more people were, were, couldn't wrap their head around it because they never thought about that. Yeah, yeah. I uh, Also, when you introduce more options, um, sometimes the original adventures become kind of interesting because I recently ran The Great Cat Conspiracy, which is the adventure in the Pugmire core, um, mm-hmm. for a mixed group. Because one person wanted to play a cat, one person wanted to play a lizard. I was like, fine, go for it. You know, mm. we're going to have fun. And the, and then we had we, we had one dog. So we had to start with a conceit that, like, the cat was a diplomat. So she was there for reasons, you know. Right. Um, but then also you, you encounter pretty early on a dog NPC who's pretty racist about cats. Yeah. And so that was an interesting scene to role play because he just kept, like, side-eyeing the cat. Being mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is this? cat doing here you know nice um which it 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 changed the dynamic of the thing Mm -hmm. um because obviously they were inclined to trust cats because they had a cat in their party Mm -hmm. uh and it was just it it was really really interesting how it changed that adventure because i've run it before for a party of just dogs right and it was it was it was cool and just seeing the different dynamics of different groups is fascinating to me so running the same adventure for a mixed party versus a party of all one type can be super fascinating in my opinion 
Absolutely. Um, and I know we've talked before about how Trinity, the allegiances, are kind of a stealth genre hack, right? right? Um, so that's a weird case where it gives you a lot of options, but it's not implied that you'll be mixing those. Um, it's much more, hey, you want to play this kind of game? Everyone's part of this legions. You want to play this kind of game? You have this kind of legions. But I have seen people play mixed allegiance games, and it works just fine. Um, it, but it, it, it's one of the rare cases where it's not designed that way, um, and it works fine both ways, but I have heard most people assume a single allegiance game. So that's a rare exception, because you're right, usually mm-hmm. when you add, like if you add uh, an Aeon character to... Um, you know, like a, a Le Fantôme group, that's a very different dynamic because Aeon characters tend to be a little more conservative in law and order as a general rule, whereas Le Fantôme is very much not. So that would definitely kind of require a different take on that adventure. Yeah, exactly. Well, interesting. So if people wanted to find you, Eddie, and talk to you about zombies or DRE or mixed splat games or any of the other 8 million things you covered in this episode, where would they do so? Uh, you could find me in the zombie-plagued streets of Atlanta, apparently, because that's where I live. <laughs> it's always super weird watching that show where it's like, oh, I know that place. Oh, oh, it was extra weird for me because when it premiered, I had just moved from Atlanta to Seattle. So it was like watching oh, no. a documentary about all the bad things happening back home. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the hospital. I was like, no, um, I was just there. <laughs> Um, but no, other than that, uh, you can find me at uh, pugsteady.com, P-U-G-S-T-A-D-Y. You can find me on Twitter at Pugsteady, uh, or you can find me in the Onyx Path Discord, either answering DRA questions or just ranting about the latest thing the Arthur Conan Doyle estate has done. <laughs> and Matthew, what about you? You can find me on matthewdawkins.com, which I've recently updated with my latest series of credits. The resume page is getting a little dense now. Uh, so I may have to stop admitting to having worked on some books. Uh, but otherwise, <laughs> they can find me on Twitter at DawkinsMP. They can find me on the Onyx Path Discord, as ever. Always happy to talk to people on there. Excellent. You can find me, of course, in the Discord, hanging out, moderating, doing, doing my thing. Uh, you can find us at theonyxpath.com, uh, the Onyx Path on my social media. And as always, many worlds, one podcast. <laughs>